Welcome to this special season of the Get Free podcast. It's an accompaniment to Dirge, Black and Indigenous Hemispheric Burial, a sound sculpture, which is a multimedia project curated by me, your host, Tao Lee Goff. In these five episodes, you will hear from collaborators on themes of stolen life and land in the Western Hemisphere. These conversations with experts on Black and Native studies informed a 30-minute video art installation that we produced as part of an architecture seminar at Cornell University. Dirge, a noun, a lament for the dead, a hymn, especially one forming a part of a funeral rite, a mournful song, piece of music, poem, or perhaps a sound sculpture. What is a sound sculpture, you might be asking? A sound sculpture is an intermedia and time-based art form in which sculpture or any kind of art object produces sound, or the reverse, in the sense that sound is manipulated in such a way as to create a sculptural as opposed to temporal form or mass. We imagined four bricks in the wall in the sound sculpture that symbolizes the different site-specific geographies, of departure to chart Black and Native life after multiple timelines of apocalypse throughout the Americas. Three groups of graduate students were assigned to curate their interpretation of a place-based sound sculpture. The four bricks represented are Manahata, the Caribbean, Ithaca, and the far future. Through experimentation with virtual reality, DJ equipment, augmented reality, spatial sound mixing, electronic rhythm composers, and 3D modeling, we were able to extend our current realities in order to pry apart the urgency of what BIPOC means, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, as a key word for our times. Together, our group looked for new nonverbal forms of language for storytelling about hemispheric racial formation. The Dirge Collective examined from a spatial frame how Black and Indigenous life intersects in an arena determined by premature death because of the ongoing nature of European colonialism. In this episode, interviewers Aparajita Bandari Reva Fenselkar and Lydia Macklin Camel speak with our guest Alyosha Goldstein, who is a professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. Together, they interrogate the past, present, and future of a city, of a people, of an entangled geography, and discuss how those occupations bleed into one another in a place that is currently known as New York. This conversation is inspired by Alyosha Goldstein's research around the historical arrangements and temporal, spatial, and sociocultural reconfigurations between colonialism, racialization, capitalism, and dispossession as reproductions and controversies in the present. I'm a Parajita. I'm a uh, third-year PhD student in the Department of Communication at Cornell. Um, I kind of broadly study social media and the intersections of kind of online and offline spaces um, and, you know, what it means for something to be online and offline, as well as kind of I interrogate the boundaries of uh, community. And 
the definition there. So. I could go next. Um, I'm Reva. I'm a second year master's in regional planning student. I'm from Mumbai. Uh, I am most interested in the impact of climate change on coastal cities and uh, and cultural landscapes more broadly. And I am interested in looking at uh, indigenous ways of responding to uh, climate change and integrating that with mainstream policy. And, um, I'm Lydia. Um, I'm a second year graduate student in landscape architecture. Um, I'm originally from Michigan, um, but New York has very similar climates. So easy to adjust. Uh, but I am interested in um, design's role in gentrification and displacement um, in urban cities and a great class to learn from everybody. And we're here with Alyosha Goldstein. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so uh, my name is Alyosha Goldstein and I, uh, I teach in the American Studies Department at the University of New Mexico. Uh, I've been here for about 16 years um, and did my uh, graduate work at NYU in New York City, um, originally from sort of Northeast, grew up in various different parts of the Northeast of what is now the United States. And um, my work looks at the issues around racial capitalism, settler colonialism, um, sort of the, the kind of framework of what you read today, the thinking about notions of uh, economies of dispossession and how those um, work through uh, specifically racialized and colonized um, peoples and places. That's why we're here to talk to you. Um, we're really excited to talk to you. Uh, so one of the things we'd really like to know more about is um, uh, the place you live and how predatory value played a role in making of New York City as we know it today and kind of how your experiences have you know, evolved this work that you're doing. Sure. So first of all, I, I actually live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I can, I can speak about it in New York also, but um, oh, uh, <laughs> lived there for a long, long time. Um, but uh, so I would say, you know, something that's, um, you know, actually true of both places and sort of um, maybe as a way to get to, to how my own work has uh, kind of evolved to address sort of similarities or connections between both places that may seem not readily apparent is that, um, you know, so the, just beginning with the kind of basic conditions in which colonization um, is not simply a, a structure of the past or foundation for um, what's the contemporary United States, but really are ongoing uh, structures that are reproduced in new ways um, historically into the present. And so, and when I talk about colonization, I'm thinking about um, not just the dispossession of Native peoples and um, the kind of imposition and occupation of colonial rule, but also the ways in which that actually is manifest through things like um, chattel slavery um, and forms of racialization um, and um, the way in which uh, people who are racialized as not white, um, and specifically people of African descent, uh, were historically uh, rendered as commodities um, to be, as property, um, to be bought and sold and um, used to increase values. So, um, so I think that you know there are multiple different ways in which the entire entirety of what is called the United States is fundamentally still shaped by those relations um, and in ways that um, 
that we see, uh, you know, we can trace histories of in particular ways, but also um, even in terms of some of the things that um, that you all spoke about when you're talking about your own interests, right? So thinking about things like gentrification, thinking about things like the very um, uneven impact of climate change um, on and how certain peoples are more vulnerable um, and viable under those conditions. Um, I think all of those are very much uh, ways to, to kind of think about what are the contemporary circumstances that colonization, uh, racialization, after the kind of afterlives of slavery matter today. Um, so, the, you know, I grew up in the, the northeastern part of what is the United States or what is called the United States, and um, I would say that part of the way in which it came to the work that I now do has to do with a, a kind of a disjuncture between what my experience of, of the place that I knew, how I knew the place where I lived, the places I lived, and what I then gradually learned about in terms of the histories of that, that place and um, about the ways in which um, uh, certain uh, the kind of enforced ignorance, um, but not just enforced, but the way in which uh, I would say, um, for lack of a better term, settlers is a, a kind of a has a whole lot of baggage as a term, but I would say, just to use that as a shorthand, um, the way in which settlers can be invested in not knowing about the place that they live and invested in a certain kind of um, disavowal of uh, those histories. Um, that part of the work that I became interested in doing was um, seeking to understand this kind of gap between the sort of common settler common sense is a term that Mark Rifkin uses uh, between settler common sense, uh, which makes absence all of these uh, conditions, um, uh, and the um, the very real ways in which they continue to manifest. So, and those are continuing to manifest. In somewhat different ways, but nevertheless, I would say uh, equally true places like New York City and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, in Albuquerque, it's there's a much um, much greater awareness, I would say, of uh, colonization um, as structuring the conditions of the place. I mean, there's you know a relatively large uh, native population uh, of Diné Pueblo peoples, um, but actually a lot of uh, you know sort of a pretty diverse um, group of native peoples that live in the city. Um, it's a city that is, as my colleagues have recently put out a book called uh, "Red Nation Rising um, from Border Town Violence to Native." liberation, it's a border town, uh, really, um, in the sense that it's uh, abuts a number of different Pueblo reservations. It's partially situated, um, well, everywhere in the so-called United States is situated on native land, but, uh, and it is predicated on the theft of that land. But um, they're, you know, explicitly, like where the university is situated is on Sandia Pueblo land. Um, so there are there's a kind of awareness I think here uh, in the way in which like say living in New York City as I did for um, uh, a long time uh, there wasn't really much of an awareness at least when I lived there I think things have changed a little bit um, with organizing around things like decolonize this place uh, or you know and also just the since 
Standing Rock a kind of uh, much more visible uh, Native movement that sort of resurgence of that since the um, 70s. Not that it ever went away, but that it sort of has gained a new sort of more general uh, awareness for people who aren't necessarily engaged in those struggles. Yeah, because we are focusing on uh, New York City, if you could, and just like the how New York City takes this concept of predatory value to the extremes, like with the Manhattan skyline, with Times Square, with, you know, just the sheer erasure of what came before the extravaganza of capitalism. Like, do you think that New York City is, you know, in some sense, a symbol of what, of all of these different things that you're talking about. And if you could talk more specifically about what makes that place, uh, what it is like, um, that would be really great. Quick digression at the beginning. I don't know if any of you are watching this, this um, television show called Rutherford Falls, which is a really interesting show that's written as five Native writers. And it's uh, basically set in this small town in upstate New York. And it's about... Um, the sort of uh, the ways in which the kind of histories of native dispossession and, and contemporary native peoples kind of reflect histories of settler uh, kind of celebrations of their own past. And there's one um, scene where uh, the one of the main native characters is interacting with this lawyer from New York, and he says to the lawyer that you know. Um, why don't you just go back to Manhattan? It's Lenape land and built with skyscrapers built by Mohawk people. <laughs> that was a great way to stop what New York is. Uh, it's, you know, New York it is still, it's Lenape land. It was never, uh, it's not seated. Uh, it was, um, it, you know, um, and there's also a really, um, vital native community there, um, that are, that, are doing organizing around that. I think that the, what we've seen recently are ways in which, um, I mean, so to speak about New York City as it presently is, is of course to talk about um, the role that the most sort of um, intensified um, kind of uh, relations of real estate um, and speculation, finance capital, have to kind of shape the particular city. Um, and the, you know, that, that I think, um, doesn't make New York unique. It has certain things that, that um, very much um, make it, um, I would say, a one of the more pronounced examples of contemporary kind of global cities that are fully um, kind of both engines and, and sort of constituted through global capitalism. And capitalism is, is a system that is based on, I mean, uh, the term that we were using, predatory value, is really uh, a way to think about um, capitalism in its historical presence, really. So we think about um, the way in which capitalism, as it's presently organized, is a system that not only historically relies on the conditions of racialized um, exploitation and dispossession and the dispossession of Native people's lands, but that um, does that in new ways in the present. And so, um, you know, the 
you would see that in, in a very pronounced sense in the way in which uh, New York is constantly cannibalizing itself for the most wealthy to um, and displacing people, uh, bringing in you know sort of the sort of incorporating those people who are. Um, uh, you know, exploiting and marginalized in particular ways, so as, you know, to the extent that the service economy needs people working there, um, but um, marked by continual waves of gentrification, of displacement, um, and uh, so it's, it's a city that's um, a set of heightened contradictions, I would say, in that way. Uh, I, I wanted to ask um, kind of how you were so you have this really great kind of portion in the beginning where you're talking about how the notion, Harvey's notion of, kind of the accumulation of dispossession is distinct from this kind of economies of dispossession. Um, and we were wondering if you could kind of expand upon that and highlight what that exact distinction is. Yeah. So, um, so actually, that's I mean, that's a great um, sort of picking up on what I was just talking about. I think that so um, you know David Harvey's notion of accumulation uh, by this possession is a, a really helpful intervention into um, kind of contemporary conceptions of capitalism that looks at as he calls it the kind of spatial fix that capital relies on in a global sense. Um, he builds on. Um, I, I think as he opens the, the, the chapter in um, the imperialism, he, he builds on um, Rosa Luxemburg's work and notions of way in which imperialism and cap finance capital relies on a constitutive outside. In other words, there's, um, as opposed to those people who, who argue that capitalism is a kind of a closed and total system, um, that Luxembourg was uh, you know, important for the way in which she talked about imperialism being this process of constant, the constant remaking of what gets characterized as so-called um, primitive or original accumulation, whereas drawing on those conditions outside of the capitalist system in order to expand and reproduce capitalism itself. Harvey is looking to that framework to, and as a geographer, to think kind of emphasize the kind of spatial ways in which global capitalism is expansive and relies as, and is, is in its essence this kind of imperial machine of kind of, um, that seeks to, to resolve um, problems like over, overproduction through expansion and incorporation. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which what we're talking about builds on Harvey's argument. I mean, I think he, he does a lot of important work in terms of understanding the dynamics of capital uh, uh, in a global sense. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't, um, he, he really, uh, even though he's, he gestures to this, but he doesn't really um, see capital capitalism as fundamentally constituted through um, in terms of racial relation, uh, uh, through colonialism, not something, uh, not simply as a moment uh, that that is in the past. And so he, so he does. I mean, he'll talk about the way in which um, this sort of expansive mode of capital matters and is absolutely crucial for the reproduction of capitalism. But um, even though he, in the chapter, he talks that he writes about this, or the essays, he talk, will talk about the Zapatistas, he doesn't really speak about the way in which Native peoples are, and notions like land back 
campaigns now, that, that doesn't really figure in the ways in which he's um, conceiving of accumulation by dispossession. So in a certain sense, our, our what I would say the main difference of uh, the way in which we're thinking about something like economies of dispossession is to start with the, the fundamental way in which racialization and, um, and indigenous dispossession are constituted for that. And so, uh, and our, our constituted as he really in relation for dispossession in the general sense, in the present. They're not just like foundation historically. I mean, even making that argument that it's foundation historically pushes back against some people who make, continue to make the argument that somehow slavery was not is separate from capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a debates around histories of slavery. Was slavery like a proto-capitalism? Is it? And for us, I think um, it's actually something that continues to be remade in the present. So after lives of slavery, the forms of racialization um, are absolutely um, there isn't capitalism without those things. Uh, you know, um, Seth Robinson, uh, and maybe paraphrased by Jody Malamud, says, you know, there there is no, uh, you know, racial capitalism isn't a particular kind of capitalism. It simply is what capitalism is. And so, in a way, it's redundant to speak of racial capitalism, but it's it's worth using that term because it, it, it calls attention to race as the primary historical mechanism through which capitalism has operated, has sought to produce value and the conditions through which it um, it operates. Yeah, um, that's, that's actually something that I think that we've all kind of like thought, thought more about, like does capitalism exist without race? And I think that that's make such great points about that. And I guess we're like, so what's the future then? What's what's the future beyond capitalism? Um, what is race? Uh, you know, when you're thinking about movements like Land Back or um, Black Lives Matter, how do we get to a point where race doesn't matter and capitalism or equitability can exist without this predatory, you know, economies of disposition, all of this happening? Does that exist? Can that happen? Well, I think that, um, I don't know that it's so much um, a getting to a place where race doesn't exist um, in the sense that um, our um, situated historical beings in, historic, in place, so so the, the, those historical conditions don't simply go away. Um, they, and I think we can, as people living in particular times, we can collectively work together to change those circumstances, and people are doing that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean always uh, a getting beyond uh, something like race, even if, so I teach a class right now uh, to uh, first year uh, college students on uh, introduction to race uh, class and ethnicity, and it's, you know, one of the basic points of that is an obvious, of the class is an obvious point that um, there's no such thing as race. Race is, a, is not something that exists in the world in an actual um, biological uh, sense. But racism is a very real thing that does continue to structure how we live our lives. And racism, um, the way in which um, that has historically accumulated, also means that there are ways in which race exists for various peoples in ways that go beyond simply... Um, well, I would say that uh, structure racial difference as a way that we understand ourselves, not simply in negative ways. So, I mean, you think about the conditions through which um, black power 
emerges, um, that's a sense through which a, a kind of shared identity and position is structured historically and matters in the present. And it doesn't necessarily need something simply that needs to be overcome, right? It doesn't need to, there doesn't need to simply be a beyond race. Um, there are ways in which we understand ourselves, I think, in, um, you know, our own inter interdependencies or communities in terms of being racialized in particular ways um, that we can't simply step outside of. That said, I mean, I think that um, that you know what we see in the current moment um, is a kind of upsurge of uh, kind of radical possibilities. Otherwise, so you see people, you know, even under the sort of most extreme conditions of the pandemic, um, we've seen these uh, incredible uprisings. Whether it's the um, you know the farm workers in India or the um, you know uh, movement for Black Lives here in the United States, and these are all broadly coalitional movements as well. They're not simply in isolation. They have, you know, they're interconnected and they emphasize their interconnectedness. Um, I think that's where that kind of the, the dismantling of um, a kind of predatory capitalism relies. I think that in part, the, the first step, and it's a kind of step that often needs to be remade again and again, is um, displacing the way in which capitalism sees it, has, has installed itself as the kind of natural horizon of life that we, and I think that actually um, for, uh, I would say especially, I don't know, maybe I'm being generationalist, but uh, I, it seems to me that especially for young people today, that, that the sort of the way in which capitalism is, is installed, has thought to be installed as, of course, the hegemonic one way that things can and should be is not pure. I think there's a ways in which that's fundamentally uh, in contestation in the current moment. Um, and I think those that fundamental contestation is how we work together to build something new and different. So I don't think it's necessarily um, useful, productive to predict what something would look like <laughs> um, and sort of after these things. I think that, um, I mean, I do think that it's important to have a vision of a world beyond capitalism, of a world that is, um, uh, that prioritizes our relationships to each other and, um, and uh, doesn't simply um, reproduce the forms of violence that saturate uh, our everyday life and world more broadly. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think the ways in which those changes come about is through collective struggle. So, and that's really difficult because we're, we are all kind of produced through the very conditions that we struggle against. Well, so, um, looking at something like racism uh, in a sort of multifaceted way is um, multi-layered because, you know, uh, everyone living, I would say, at least just to take the United States as a kind of place, everyone living in the United States is structured through racism, whether or not they have been different positioned differently in relationship to that. But that, those, that logic of relations between people is what we have been produced through. So um, it's not something we simply step outside of. Yeah, talking about like solidarity and working across differences to sort of create an alternative movement to 
thinking about a future world uh, could you elaborate a little bit more about and i know you spoke about this but more directly about uh, grounded relationalities and what you mean by that and like how do you um, sort of see those manifesting in your everyday life and how do you advise your students to engage in a practice like that Sure. Well, I mean, I, I would say in one sense, and I, I don't know, I think this is not necessarily speaking for all of the, um, the co-authors together, um, but that, that, but that grounded relationship is a way just to, to kind of um, emphasize interdependence, right? you know, that, our, that we are relationally bound up with one another um, in they're, you know, sort of counter to the sort of uh, individualist kind of uh, um, self-possessed, um, self-possessive individual um, that we are fundamentally. But so grounded relationalities um, in, as a term is something that, uh, that Jody Bird brought to um, the introduction that we all wrote together, the, the economy of disposition introduction. Um, Jody, by the way, is going to be coming to Cornell, <laughs> and so you're all very lucky. Um, but uh, so the, um, the term is really uh, intended to, I think, and she's written more about this. So there's a recent uh, essay that she published in Social Text in December um, um, uh, that kind of elaborates on that further term further. She's in conversation specifically with uh, Glenn Coulthard and Ann Simpson about the way in which they use this notion of uh, normative relationalities. Um, but in any case, the, the, the sort of the gist of it is to, to be drawing upon kind of um, other understandings of, um, you know, of, I would say in a certain sense of uh, specifically native conceptions of kinship that are not necessarily a biological kinship, but certain ways in which we are um, bound up with, related to one another, have obligations to each other um, that come from um, our, our collective life. And that is, uh, those relations are not limited to people, but they're related to um, the kind of non-human world and to the, um, the places that we live, to the earth. All of this is part of it. We have an obligation. We, have a, we are made of those relations, and we have an obligation to sustain and, and um, contribute to the ways in which those relations can flourish. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, the way in which... Uh, I find useful to think about that is again through a kind of a set of interconnections between, um, it's like in my life, where I am now, and also that was always being connected to a kind of a broader context as well, a global context. So, you know, I have, um, so with my students at uh, UNM, um, one, one way that I um, think that it's really helpful to be, um, to think about a kind of fostering grounded relationalities and building from that place is through, um, through working um, from the history and, and lived relations of this place. So I teach a class that is um, a food justice class and we have students in a non-pandemic context, we would go and work with different community-based agriculture groups, local farmers, um, and 
um, work with them to learn from them and also um, just through the process of doing things, unglamorous things like weeding and um, uh, helping uh, the, the kind of a food distribution. Those sorts of things are how we um, become um, actively grounded in the places where we are and contribute to um, relations of living together. Um, and I think that in those very localized ways, we're also simultaneously um, engaged in more global transformations. Um, you know, it's part that does things like that. Uh, Food justice on a local level is connected to things like La Via Campesina, like all kinds of mobile movements, for farm workers and agricultural uh, justice that um, are fundamental challenges to global global agribusiness, global capital, to the ways in which um, you know the the kind of expendability of the planet um, through um, this sort of mono uh, culture of agriculture and um, pesticides and all of that. So, so that's one way. Um, I think that the, the specific terminology that we're using in the introduction about grounded relationalities is to call attention to um, how these draw on uh, other epistemologies, other ways of knowing that are specifically um, from native traditions without without fetishizing or making that sort of like the one true source, saying that these are, uh, in many ways, these, um, resources for knowing and engaging and countering the current system. Um, and, and also, I think there, uh, it's, I would say, more broadly, it's also other, it's broader traditions, as you were saying, that are gesturing towards in terms of solidarity and collectivity. It's, you know, sort of uh, women of color feminism. It's queer of color critique. It's the ways in which it's the sort of um, oppositional alliances or connections that we build together um, to survive under conditions mm -hmm. that are basically, um, especially for people who are uh, racialized as non-white, who are not in the um, so-called first world, who are not uh, materially well off, are conditions that are basically um, made to produce uh, their viability and um, premature death. We keep coming back to that predatory value in almost all of our discussions. So, well, <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. I'm glad to hear that it's uh, it's generative. It's a it is a, a you know it's a dense piece. We yeah. kind of pack a lot into that. So I, <laughs> I appreciate you working through it. I, a, um, it took us a long time to write together, and um, uh, I really um, feel very fortunate. I mean, in a certain sense, what some of the things we're talking about. Um, I feel like very fortunate um, to have been a part of a process that in a sense manifests some of that. So I think working collectively, mm -hmm. like working to write that piece collectively, we, um, the, the whole issue of social text that we did was in many years in the making. Um, and it sort of uh, it, it speaks to the best aspects of academic work, mm -hmm. which is not just academic. It can be any kind of you know, collective labor together. But um, but I I uh, really value the the way in which that piece came from and that edit the volume came from our relationships with each other the authors um, and the contributors so um, so thank you for dirge black and indigenous hemispheric burial was made possible through a seminar that was taught by Tally Goff through the Mellon Collaborative Studies in Architecture 
Urbanism and the Humanities program at Cornell University. We are thankful to the collective passion of our many collaborators and folks that we have been in conversation with. For more information and to experience the sound sculpture, as well as to read the peer-reviewed journal article that accompanies the work, go to www.darklaboratory.com slash dirge.